It pictures the coming of God's Holy Spirit to His people that it might dwell in them for the first time. It speaks of the first fruits we've heard of already today, being prepared to enter the kingdom of God and life everlasting. There are so many wonderful things about the day of Pentecost. We're all familiar with, and I will not turn there, Acts 2, wherein they had been told to wait, count 50 days, and when the day of Pentecost was fully come, God poured out His Spirit in a very fiery, loud, dramatic fashion. People spoke in languages that they did not know. People heard languages that they did not know. It was not gibberish. They understood what was being said. It was an absolute miracle from God Almighty that people could understand people speaking in other languages that they knew not. Thousands of people were converted that day and in the ensuing few days. The shadow of the apostles passing over people healed them immediately and completely. What an incredible day that was. And Joel tells us that that day will come again at the end of the age. Peter thought the end of the age was upon him when he saw these things, and he quoted Joel. But that was not the case. It was a more minor manifestation of what shall be at the end time. When God pours His Spirit out upon His people, they dream dreams and have visions and speak things that were beyond them to speak. When the lame walk, the deaf hear, and the blind see. When God is going to be far more dramatic in the final fulfillment than He has ever been in the past. And we are on the cusp of that today. We are near that time. It isn't far. Well, God's Holy Spirit, in its fullness, is a wonderful, wonderful thing. Here today, we who have been baptized went under the water, and the old man was to have died, and we had hands laid upon us afterward, and it was asked that God beget us with that Spirit, just a very small beginning of His Spirit, that would then grow within us. It wasn't a great dramatic happening and show like it was there in Acts 2, when God was making His hand known, not only to the apostles and the disciples, but to the world around, to the whole city of Jerusalem. And it would be carried by those people who were there for the feast back to their hometowns and where they were from. And this majestic performance would be told over and over again and indeed was written in the book of Acts so that mankind might read it forevermore. So, we either do have, or some of us are aspiring someday to have, the Holy Spirit of God. But you didn't really feel too much at the time you were baptized and had the laying on of hands. Maybe it was a warm, emotional, good experience, and yet your shadow passing didn't heal people. 
you woke up the next day and found you still had human nature and all your problems did not go away, what's the mystery here? What's the difference? There is a scripture in 1 Thessalonians 5.19, which we have read over many times. It is in context, just a little statement in itself, within some general direction and guidance and instruction that Paul is giving here. He says in verse 14, Now we exhort you, brethren, warn them that are unruly, comfort the feeble-minded, support the weak, be patient toward all men, see that none render evil for evil to any man, but ever follow that which is good, both among yourselves and to all men. And then he gives these singular thoughts. Rejoice evermore. Be in an attitude of rejoicing and happiness, and in a positive mental frame, in other words. Pray without ceasing, or continually, or frequently and often. In everything, give thanks. Don't be in a sour, poor, pitiful me attitude, but in a thankful mood. We're happier when we're in a thankful mood rather than a bitter mood, are we not? For this is the will of God in Emmanuel concerning you. He says in another place, he wishes above all things, Paul did, that we prosper and be in health. I don't think that meant just physically. Prospering and being in good health physically is a good and wonderful thing, and that is to be desired. But prospering spiritually and being in spiritual good health is far more important than, I think, the deeper meaning of what he said. And then he says, quench not the Spirit. I've read that many times, and I thought, well, I don't want to quench God's Spirit. I don't think any of us here would volunteer to do so. I don't think it's on our mind to quench or put out or throttle or cast down or diminish or block God's Spirit in any way. But I've never heard anyone speak on just how you would go about quenching the Spirit. What does that mean? Is there a way that we do that? If he says don't do it, then there must possibly be a way to do that, to quench it. Now, we want it to flow freely, do we not? I think that would be our goal and our purpose. But there is obviously a danger, and Paul saw it in the church, perhaps in himself and in the brethren wherever he went, specifically here at Thessalonia, that it could be quenched. It could be put out. When you quench a fire, you throw water on it, and it quenches it, destroys the fire, puts it out, puts it away. Now, I want God's Spirit. He told us there in John 14 through 16 very clearly several times that it was a comforter He would send. Now, how does it comfort you, and how does it comfort me? 
We have what we call down comforters. We put on our beds sometimes, or various types of materials. And what do they do? They hold the heat in. They make us more comfortable. They make us feel warm and fuzzy because they're soft and pleasant. Now, if we are to be comforted, that means then that we must be having some difficulties and mental, emotional problems and difficulties that need comfort, that need assuaging, that need care. So the Holy Spirit is meant as a comforter. Now, did you ever, perhaps as a child, get to thrashing around in the middle of the night and the comforter fell off your bed and then you got cold? And you balled up and tried to stay warm, but the comforter was gone. Now, God sent His Spirit to comfort, to strengthen us, to help us feel better, to be thankful, to be in a good mood, to not be stressed and have difficulty in terms of our overall approach to life and how we deal with things. It was there to help us to be a help and a comfort to us. Now, it doesn't seem that this works as well for us as we would like it to all the time. Because we go through all kinds of difficulties and problems that we may have trouble handling. We want to be something that we don't tend to be. We wish we were different than we are. We want to change, but we don't want to hear anybody tell us how to or what to. Uh, We find resistance to the Spirit of God somehow. And there must be some manner in which we quench it. Therefore, it does not flow as freely as it should, and we do not receive as much benefit from it as we would like. So what I want to address today is how to more effectively and efficiently use that which God has sent us as a friend, as a gift, as a comfort, and not to quench it inadvertently. We need education in this area. And I came up with some thoughts and analogies and so on that I think might help make it clearer to us what we need to do and how we need to go about it so that we might be more effective in being followers of Christ and of God and that He might be able to work better through us. Let's address, first of all, some things about the Spirit of God. Uh, These things we have read, these things we know, but I would like to review them a bit here and maybe add some comment so that we get a better feeling of how the Spirit should be working through us. Now, he tells us in John 10.10 that he would desire that we have life and have it more abundantly. God does not want us to barely be squeaking through. He does not desire us to always be struggling. Now, he never said this life would be easy. Don't get me wrong. 
And we have reiterated over and over how we will have trials, troubles, tribulations, tests, and so on and so forth, chastenings. Those are all part of the equation we understand. But somehow, through all this, we're supposed to have life and have it more abundantly, be able to enjoy it more with less argita to the emotions, if you will. Now, let's review some things in 1 Corinthians 3. 1 Corinthians 3. And here I'll pick it up in verse 16. Know you not that you are the temple of God, and that the Spirit of God dwells in you? The Holy Spirit is the mind, the power, the essence of God, and He equates our bodies as the temple of His Spirit. And He dwells within us. Now that immediately raises some problems, because God does not like sin. He does not like carnality, stubbornness, and all the elements of human nature that are negative. And if our brains were to be examined, and you can examine your own, we just did it at Passover not too long ago, we find that there are many, many things in the temple of God that are not good. Now, when Christ found things in the, in the temple, the physical temple, that were not good, he got a whip and he ran the money changers and their sin out of the temple. That is one of the very few displays of true anger that Christ showed while he was here on this earth. And indeed, in that case, it was righteous, not self-righteous anger. So he could not abide. It offended him greatly that there was sin in the temple. So sin in our body, in our mind, highly offends God. He's trying to live there. He wants that us to be his house. But he wants the house clean. He wants a good place to dwell. He doesn't like filth and dirt and trash and clutter. So, already we see we've got a problem. If any man defile the temple of God, him shall God destroy. For the temple of God is holy, which temple you are. So he expresses there what I just said. Let no man deceive himself. If any man among you seems to be wise in this world, let him become a fool that he may be wise. For the wisdom of this world is foolishness with God. The world will fill your mind with all kinds of corruption. They will defile your mind if they can find any way to do it, and so will Satan, and we've heard about that already today. But God wants it cleansed. Now this is a challenge of the highest order, is it not? This is the biggest challenge we have before us. 
is to cleanse the mind, the dwelling place, the abode of God. And we find it very difficult to do, don't we? 2 Corinthians 6, 16. He continues this same type of thought. 2 Corinthians 6, verse 16. What agreement has the temple of God with idols? For you are the temple of the living God. As God has said, I will dwell in them and walk in them, and I will be their God, and they shall be, be my people. Wherefore, or as a result of this statement, come out from among them, and be you separate, says the Eternal, and touch not the unclean thing, and I will receive you. So he reiterates that we are the temple of God, and that we are not to touch the unclean thing. We are to stay away from this world and the things that it has to offer, because they create sin, and they create clutter and evil in our minds. Now, we had a whole series on Babylon and other, many, many other sermons that go into all that, so I'm not here today to convince us that we have evil in our minds. I think we all pretty well know that. What do we do about it? How do we accomplish what Paul is saying here? That's what I want to get to before this day is over and hope that we have a better understanding of what we need to do. If you're going to do a job, you need the right tools to do it with, right? If I'm going to cut down a tree, I'd like to have a chainsaw or at least an axe. A hammer and a screwdriver isn't going to work too well. We need the proper tools. We need the knowledge of what to do, other the tree, otherwise the tree might fall on our head, even if we do get it cut down. So, we need to, to one degree or another, get organized, let's say, to have clear thinking in what we need to do if we are going to accomplish it. John 15, verse 4. I want just a few more of these. I'm going to go through them, hopefully, fairly quickly to save time for all that I have to say. John 15, verse 4. Abide in me, and I in you. As the branch cannot bear fruit of itself, except it abide in the vine, no more can you, except you abide in me. Now, in Corinthians, it said, He dwells in us. And here it says that it's both. He dwells in us, but we must also abide or dwell in Him. We have to be in His mind. We have to be projected into His character, into His thinking. We have to think like Him in order not to think like we do, like Satan does, like the world does. So it's a combination of things here, and the Holy Spirit is there to help us accomplish that. Ephesians 2. Again, one very familiar, but I want to tie it together with this. Ephesians 2 and verse 20. Well, let's begin in verse 19, because it said before, 
we're to stay away from this world and its influences we just read. So he says here in verse 19, Now therefore you are no more strangers and foreigners, but fellow citizens with the saints and of the household of God. Before conversion, we were strangers, pilgrims out there from God and with the world. Now we have departed from them and become fellow citizens with the people of God who hopefully are thinking the way we're thinking and trying to do things right. And are built upon the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ himself, or Emmanuel, being the chief corner stone. He holds up the whole building. In whom all the building, fitly framed together, grows to a holy temple in the eternal. So we've seen that we individually are the temple of God, but we see here the whole building, all the members, are included in a larger temple. So we may be a little temple, but we're a piece and a part of a bigger building. In whom you also are builded together, put together, assembled together, for an habitation of God through the Spirit. So not only are we to be cleansed and pure individually, but all of us fitted carefully together by the master builder, put in the temple where he wants us to be, are also to be clean, and we are not to have division and strife and difficulty and fighting in wars among ourselves. That is to be expunged. It is not to exist. God, as someone said earlier today, hates division and fracturing. Satan loves it. A house divided against itself cannot stand. If we are divided against ourselves, we cannot stand. So we are to be fitly framed together so that God might happily dwell among us. Now, we did not achieve that in worldwide beyond a certain point. I think He was with us. He helped us. And His attention was on building that church. But then our attention waned and too much sin and too much difficulty began to arise and God blew it apart and said, I cannot dwell in this temple, to put it another way. Now, out of the splinters and pieces, He is going, not attempting to, but going to build a final temple before the end of this age and he wants it to be resplendent. He wants its glory to reach far beyond what we ever achieved in Worldwide Church of God. He has thrown down the gauntlet and held us to a high standard. The standard that was always there, but that which we did not achieve in any great measure. So now we have a challenge to do better than ever we did before, by far. This, we, are to be part of the greatest temple that ever existed. 
that in the early New Testament church began with a bang and went out with a whimper. A great falling away, where the Holy Spirit came with drama and power at the beginning. Paul later said, don't quench the Spirit. Don't let it get away. Don't destroy it from within you. Preserve it. Keep it. Many, many people in the church of God have now lost it. It's gone. It's been quenched. It's gone out. Half, according to the parable of the virgins, will have no spirit. It'll be gone. And the others are going to be scrambling to light their lamps and hope there's sufficient there. Now, I propose that we need to look at this carefully and try to ascertain a good way to ensure that we can be part of it and that it happens. Let's go to Colossians 1. It's close here. Verse 27. Well, 26. Even the mystery which has been hid from ages. We had the book in the church, Mystery of the Ages, which propounded to explain the plan and the purpose of God and did a pretty good job of it. And from generations, but now is made manifest to His saints. I think that book did help make it manifest. Now, maybe we had already heard it preached, but that was to be sent out to others. And yet there was much there for us to learn and to understand better. To whom God would make known what is the riches of the glory of this mystery among the Gentiles, not only to Israel, but to the Gentiles as well, which is, here's the crux of the matter, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. We can see in other places that Christ is to live his life in us and through us. In other words, we should project Christ in the way that we walk and talk and think and act. We should walk as He walked, 1 John 2.6, I think it is. Our reactions should be the same that His reactions would have been and still are. Now, we could get into that pretty deeply, couldn't we? Because our reactions are so often so selfish, so self-righteous, so inward, so petty, so picky, so mean, so whatever, so carnal, so human and fleshly, instead of the kind of response that we might receive from Christ. So here we are to be living with Christ in us, the hope of glory, and Him projecting Himself through our mind, our eyes, our hands, our mouths, our tongues. Galatians 2. And here about verse 20, I think. I am crucified with Christ. Nevertheless, I live. We, the old man, 
should have died at baptism, even as he physically died, we in a spiritual level. Yet not I, but Christ lives in me. And the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by the faith of the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. So he said, we're still physical. We still have all the desires and needs of being a physical human being. But we're supposed to be walking in a spiritual way. And it is quite difficult to take that which is physical and cause it to act spiritual. That is not an easy task. We all know that by experience. We are physical, and it's easy to react physically. But we must learn to react spiritually. As he said in another place, which I wrote down, and I'll probably get to it, but I'll say it now. If you live in the Spirit, walk in the Spirit. Don't walk in the flesh. I think that's Romans 8 or 9, somewhere right in there. We'll probably run across it again. But we're to be walking the way Christ would walk, even though we're physical. Now, he came and set the example by being physical and walking in the Spirit while he was physical. And it was a very, very difficult task he had before him, but he accomplished it. The only one who ever has. The rest of us haven't even come close. How are we doing so far? Now let's go to Luke, chapter 11. And let's understand God's attitude about this situation. Because we can already see that there's a problem here that needs attention. It needs fixed somehow, some way. And why just continue mucking along? Why not make some progress? And if anything comes of this sermon today... I would hope that it would be a better understanding and a better knowledge of how this is to work so that we might make more progress instead of spinning our wheels so much. Luke 11, verse 13. This is the story. Well, let's go... Let's go up to verse 9. And I say to you, ask, and it shall be given you. Seek, and you shall find. Knock, and it shall be opened to you. So there is a barrier, okay? A blockage, a door that has to be knocked on in order for it to be opened that we might receive the help we need. The analogy here is that something is shut that it has to be opened. If you're going to get in a house, you've got to open the door or learn to walk through wood. If we're going to have access to God, we have to remove that which blocks ingress and egress so that there is an easy flow between without getting hurt trying to get there, if you will. For everyone that asks receives, and he that seeks finds, and to him that knocks, it shall be opened. Now, it's not something where we 
alone, have to get through a locked door. But if we knock and ask, it will be opened to us. Someone inside, in other words, the butler, the owner, opens the door and allows us in. So approaching God is like knocking on a door, but we can't open it without Him doing something, unlocking it and opening it. Further, if a son shall ask bread of any of you that is a father, will you give him a stone? Or if he ask a fish, will he for a fish give him a serpent? Or if he shall ask an egg, will he offer him a scorpion? What's God's attitude, in other words? Is he mean and nasty and hurtful and wants to give you something bad when you want something good? Is that the way God is? No. If you then, being evil, that would be you and me. If you then, being evil, and the heart is deceitful and desperately wicked, who can know it? We, by nature, and we understand this, I think, tend to evil. That's just the way the human mind goes. If you don't believe it, look at the whole world around you. Is there war and fighting and chaos and killing and murder and, and beating and abusing and hurting and lying and cheating and stealing and go on and on? It's everywhere. It's rife. It's epidemic worldwide. There's no peace. There's no safety. There's no comfort. There's no hope. And it's all coming to a grand smash climax when it's all going to fall apart before our very eyes. Already collapsing it. They're just poking it up, trying to support it with a few trillion dollars. And even that's going to fail and it's going to fall flat. This whole society is destined for nothing but trouble. If you then, being evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, even if we are human and carnal and mean and nasty by nature, we still like to give good things to our children. How much more shall your heavenly Father give the Holy Spirit to them that ask Him? So we receive, or are conceived by, the Spirit of God with the laying on of hands after baptism. And then we can continue to ask that God give us His Spirit. And he is so very, very willing to do that, wishes to, wants to. Happily sent the Comforter in Acts 2, just as he had promised. And it did wonderful things. That Spirit of God is just as powerful, just as strong and as meaningful as ever it was. It's still there. God hasn't gotten old. He hasn't gotten feeble. He doesn't have Alzheimer's. He is just as strong as ever he was. And he wants to dwell in us. Christ himself wants to be comfortable in our heads and like it there and want to be there. That is his desire and his wish and his hope. Does he get crowded out? Does he get quenched? Now, we've already rehearsed through John fourteen sixteen how he would send the Comforter. But just how does it work? How do we get comforted? Um, he 
tells us that he gives us the earnest of his spirit. Second Corinthians one twenty-two. Maybe I'll turn back there and read that right quick. Because there's a contrast between what he does to us, I think, and what he did with Christ. Second Corinthians one and verse twenty-two. Who also has sealed us, he seals the hundred forty-four thousand, you know, and gives and, and is given the earnest of the Spirit in our hearts. We do not have the Spirit in a full, completely, uh, total aspect yet. That will not happen until we are glorified at the resurrection then we will receive it fully and wholly. Now, it will be given in greater measure than it is today when the days of Joel's prophecy come to pass. And there will be dramatic things like there were on Acts 2 after Christ's resurrection. But it is only an earnest or a down payment, if you will. Actually, earnest money is even before down payment in today's real estate market. You give a small amount showing that you mean business, that you're serious, and they call it, I'm earnest, I'm serious money. I plan to do this. Otherwise, you can say, oh, yeah, I plan to buy that house. I'll be back tomorrow and sign the papers and give you the money. And they know good and well, you may very well change your mind and not show up. So you give them some money today, as earnest that you mean business. God gives us the Spirit in earnest so that we have it in a smaller way as a promise of something that is going to come in a greater way later on. Now, in a real estate transaction, after the earnest money, then you have a percentage of down payment an increase of your commitment that you plan to pay the whole thing and receive that which you are buying in whole, not in part. Then you have a mortgage, and you pay that with interest to the banksters month by month. The analogy breaks down because God does not use usury on us. But at any time, if you wish you can pay more money on that loan or that mortgage and reduce the principal so that you pay less interest and and you own it outright sooner, at least in theory. Now we receive earnest of the Spirit of God, conception, very small, but the analogy Herbert Armstrong used, I think, is quite correct and fits the Bible quite nicely, that then we must grow over time, just as a baby does in the mother's womb. And that down, that earnest, that begettal, becomes larger and larger. And the promise of a baby gets more and more real, doesn't it? Until you think you're going to pop and look like you're going to pop. And then you receive the full payment. And then you forget the suffering of nine months and the pain of birth because a man is born into the world, or even a girl. I say that. The Scripture says a man, but 
a girl is a delight as well. We're not sexist here. A baby. And what joy and what excitement. A newborn babe in the world. Now that's the analogy that is in the Bible. We receive God's Spirit, but then it needs to grow and grow. If it stops growing, we can become a miscarriage. It has to grow. It can't sit idle. Nor can it go backward, be quenched from what it has grown to. It has to keep moving forward all the time. There can't be any stoppage, any blockage. So that earnest has to turn into something greater. Now let's compare that with a scripture here that I think is talking directly of Christ, because I think it's clear from what we just read that we do not receive the Spirit of God without measure. We receive it with measure. Earnest at first, growth over time like a baby, until we're born. Then it is given in full. But with Christ it was different. Notice here in John 3, verse 34. For he whom God has sent speaks the words of God, and the context here is talking of Christ. For God gives not the Spirit by measure to him. The Father loves the Son and has given all things into his hand. So when Christ was here, he did not receive it in measure. He received the fullness of the Spirit of God. He needed that to set the example that he did set. He had the full capacity available to him. Therefore, he could resurrect, he could heal so quickly, so easily, so completely. He could control his every thought and not let it get out of hand. Even though the temptation entered his mind and was there, he did not give in to it or allow it to develop into sin. And it was incredible what he had. And he wants to live in us, as we've read, to project himself through our lives to others. That's what he did while he was on the earth, was he was outgoing and giving and serving and loving, teaching, helping showing anger at times with the money changers and wherever it needed to be shown. But for the most part, that was not the case. He is slow to anger, and he was slow to anger then. So, he had a fullness of the Spirit that is beyond what we have been able to have. Why? Because he could handle it. And we have not reached that point of maturity where he can give us that kind of power and strength and ability to do the things that he did and in which, in many cases, the apostles did. He has given us somewhat of an ability to anoint and pray, and some few folk are healed and partially healed, and we receive some help. But the dramatic things are held in reserve 
And they will come in due time, as Joel says. Meanwhile, we need to be growing and be sure that's the direction we're headed instead of quenching and staunching and causing the Spirit not to be able to work through us because of what? Why? What blocks it? What stops it? I'm going to pause on that button for a moment and go back to Galatians 5. And we'll address that question I just asked after this. Because we need a little background to understand. Now, this is something we've all read many, many times. But let's understand it in the context of today and the material that we're going to get to. Galatians 5, and beginning in verse 13. For brethren, you have been called to liberty. Our calling is to liberty, to freedom. Freedom to what? Freedom to live in peace and security and happiness and to prosper and be in health physically, spiritually, and in every way. We have been called to succeed and to live filled, full, happy, abundant, joyous lives. That's what we've been called to do. And to some degree, we achieve that. And to some degree, we're depressed and frustrated and mad and upset and angry and goofy and whatever. But we're called to be liberated from the things that beset and upset and frustrate and make the world a miserable place. Only use not liberty for an occasion to the flesh, but by love serve one another. Christ, while He was here was at liberty to do what he wished. He was a free moral agent. He chose to serve others and not to give occasion to his flesh to sin. For all the law is fulfilled in one word, even in this, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Do nothing, say nothing to them that you would not wish said or done to you. But if you bite and devour one another, I wonder if any of that was going on in the church at Galatia or in the other churches that Paul visited. If it had not, then why did he address it? The problem was there. Okay? I realize it is not a problem today, but it was back then. So we're just having a history lesson here today. Okay? Tongue-in-cheek he says that. But if you bite and devour one another, take heed that you be not consumed one of another. Cannibalism. That we just chew each other into little pieces. This I say then, walk in the Spirit, and you shall not fulfill the lust of the flesh. Good advice. God is Spirit, and He wishes to live His life through Christ, in us, and through us, and project His character to everyone else, to our brothers and to the world. That is His goal and purpose. 
For the flesh lusts against the spirit, and the spirit against the flesh. We have automatically an in-house war going on. Because we were born of the flesh, and we think fleshly and humanly, and we are trying to supplant that way of thinking and acting with walking in a spiritual way and thinking like God does instead of the way we want to think. That's the basis of a war. These are contrary, the one to the other. They're the opposite. So that you cannot do the things that you would. He says, you've got a problem. He even expressed it of himself in another place. The things I want to do, I can't do, and the things that I don't want to do, I do. O wretched man that I am. He's expressing that again here in just a little bit different words. What does he say after he made that statement, though? Thanks to God, or to Christ, that He can save me from this wretchedness that I am. So this has to do with God. If we're going to win this, we can't do it apart from God. Paul could not have accomplished anything or walked in the Spirit apart from God. You cannot do it through will worship, through setting your mind, and I will be good today. Don't happen. You might be good for a while. How long is it going to take? Till you get out of bed? It is the battle on our own we simply cannot win. It is too contrary and we are too weak. We have to have help. That's the beginning of where the light starts to come on. We must have help from God. He explains it a little more. The things that we would do as compared to the things that we tend to do. If you be led of the Spirit, you are not under the law or the penalty of the law of death, because the Spirit rises above that, and the blood of Christ can forgive you so that you don't have to die for the sins that you have perpetrated. Now, the works of the flesh are manifest. In case any of us miss it, and I can say we're deceitful and desperately wicked and quote some of those scriptures, Paul uh, defines it a little bit better here for us. And get specific. The things which your mind, my mind, wants to do are manifest, and they are these. Adultery, fornication, uncleanness, lawlessness, idolatry, witchcraft, hatred, contempt and contagion or variance, emulations, an old word, uh, wrath, anger, strife, sedition, uh, that's trying to think, find things against the leadership or whatever, heresies, false doctrine, envyings, jealousy, so on, murder, drunkenness, wrong kind of partying, and such like. If this isn't an extensive enough list for you, then there are other things that could be added to it that the human mind can find to do that are ungodly. Now, I submit in some ways we have a bigger problem than any generation before us. 
Paul wrote this when there were no electronics, and people still had these problems. What are the first things he mentions here? Adultery and fornication. Rampant and rife in our society. And you can't turn on a TV or a computer or an iPod or pad or food or whatever they got out now and not see advertisements all over the margins and everywhere you go on the net of half-naked women or men. The commercials are full of sex or the shows themselves, Dancing with the Stars, where half-nude people have sex essentially on stage. And on and on it goes. The Big Bang Theory, I don't know what that's about, but I suspect that it probably is about some neurotic, effeminate young men who would like to do some banging on the wall or something. Our society is full of this stuff, and the stimulation is there for man and woman everywhere. And it is promoted by Hollywood, it's promoted by our president, it's promoted by the politicians, it's promoted by industry, it's promoted everywhere to us. It's almost before us continually. Wow. I think it's a bit less of a problem in Colorado City than it is in Los Angeles. I don't agree with a lot of what goes on over there, but there's not an awful lot of provocative dress. I'm not saying we all ought to wear granny gowns and, and guy gowns all the time, but there's a greater contrast between what the world is doing and what God wants us to be. So, they're provoking those thoughts continually. And that's just the first two. There's, you know, there's a long list here. They provoke us to defraud, to lie, to cheat, to try to get something for nothing with the sweepstakes. And I mean, it just, it's a vast myriad. You know about it. You do. So not only is your mind naturally there, it is stimulated by everything around you to go there and stay there and never come away from that. Satan is the ruler and the prince of the power of the air of this world and has deceived the whole world and drawn them from God and it is utterly godless out there. And we are a small enclave, a little beachhead of those trying to go the other way. And God has commanded us to come out of Babylon and yet we tend to bring Babylon here. Think about it. And such like, of the which I tell you before, as I also have told you in time past. So he repeated himself, didn't he? That's too bad. That they which do such things shall not inherit the kingdom of God. Won't be there. That's scary. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, long-suffering, gentleness, goodness, faith, meekness, temperance. Against such there is no law. Some have felt that those, that list is what 
comprises the fruit of the Spirit. That is not necessarily so. The fruit of the Spirit of God produces a lot more than is in that short list. Where's mercy? You can start naming a lot of attributes of God, hope, that is not in that list. He said in such like about the works of the flesh. You could add to the list, okay? The same is true of the Spirit of God. This is a sample of the kind of fruit that the Spirit produces. But there are other things it produces as well. And you can find them listed throughout the Bible. Things that are produced by the Spirit of God. So don't think we're limited just to this list. We're also allowed to have other attributes of God that he shows in other places, okay? And they that are Christ have crucified the flesh, which we just read about, with the affections and lusts of it. If we live in the Spirit, let us also walk in the Spirit. Not just profess it, not just speak it, but walk in it. Let us not be desirous of vain glory, provoking one another and envying one another and creating problems and division among ourselves. So he lays it out here of what the Spirit can do. Now we have the Spirit given as earnest toward salvation, and by that we should be able to begin to produce fruit. He tells us there in John 14 that he is the vine, we're the branches, and that through him we are to produce fruit. Does that mean we're to produce pears and apples and oranges? No. The fruit of the Spirit is listed here. So if He dwells in us, we should then begin to produce these things and more. But we find that we still have some problems. Now, what can we do? I learned something about computers recently that I didn't know. There's still plenty I don't know. But my son is very much into them and fixes them and builds them and he can in about three seconds cause my eyes to glaze. I have no idea what he's talking about. But he is pretty good at it, okay? Now, I took my computer over there. I was beginning to have some problems with it, would, it had begun to slow down, it had begun to crash once in a while, and it really wasn't operating too well. And I had forgotten to defrag it for months and months, and, you know, time goes by, and it wasn't working too well. So I take it in, he puts it on his bench, and he had told me that I'm supposed to keep the dust off of it, okay? And... So before I took it over there, I made sure I took the thing off and got one of those little cans I aired and went and got the dust out, I thought. So the first lesson when I got there was he took the lid off and he said, ooh, this thing's dirty inside. So he took an air hose like you'd fill up a car tire with, with a compressor on it, and he put something in there to keep the fans from going 100,000 miles an hour and burning up. And did he blow the dust out of that thing? And he told me again, as he has before, <clears throat> on deaf ears, that the biggest enemy 
of a computer is external. That a little film of dust on the components inside a computer do more to damage that computer than any other thing there is. It only takes a fine layer of dust to cause the heat to be retained and the fans can't cool it enough. And it's hard for me to imagine. you got a fan blowing all the time and a little bit of dust on there, not very thick. But he said it creates enough heat that that computer cannot work and overheats and the components fail. That's the biggest enemy. Hmm. Did we not just discuss our brain, which is a computer, better than those, but still. And it's the external things coming in from the world and from Satan that cause the biggest chance of failure. Those things which we see and hear and observe and that are pushed upon us, like dust comes in the window and settles down on your computer and it gets to where it cannot function properly and do what it was created to do. And you who are its master, its owner, its lover, whatever you are to your computer, get frustrated with it because it doesn't work right. And Christ trying to dwell in us gets frustrated because we don't work right. Now, that's the external. Now, internally, we already know that we have problems because even without all this external electronic stuff that is coming at us in this generation was already there in past generations, starting with Adam and Eve. Selfishness and greed and all those things were in their minds which caused them to be susceptible to Satan. So, apart even from the dust... We have internal problems. Now, we've probably all been told we should defrag a computer, okay? That's where you punch defrag in there somewhere in the control panel. But he told me it has limited capacity to help if you're using the Microsoft defrag program. He said it'll help a little bit, but... Sometimes it does more harm than good, actually. He's seen that happen. Now, I had not known until this trip, and he has a professional defragger machine. He said it cost about 500 bucks. But in a computer, and it showed on the screen there on the defragger, mine, a series of little rectangles or, or squares, I think they were kind of rectangles, it doesn't matter, Rows and rows of them. And those represent, as I understand it now, some of you might understand it better, but that showed a clean, pure, ready-to-work, just manufactured, right out of the box, if it was made right, computer that's going to be fast and efficient and do what you tell it to do and not jump and jitter and slow down and stop and crash and all that stuff. It's supposed to just work and work good. And every time he builds me one or fixes mine, it works and it works good for a while. But on mine, and those show up green on that screen that he has. All these green blocks. And you get a new computer that has everything working. Everything is green like a beautiful field. 
But then you take one like mine that was slowing down and not working quite as well, and a lot of those dots have turned red. That means they're blocked. That means they don't work anymore. That means the computer has to work overtime because within its design, if there are certain blockages that occur, where you picked up a virus here and it destroyed this part, or you had some kind of a malfunction that destroyed these. So those are red. That means they're blocked out. They don't work anymore. So your computer finds a way to go around them and find a path that's still green and works. That's why it slows down and takes so long, is because it's trying to find a way through all the blockages that are there. And sometimes it can't find a way and it just says, and crashes. And you have to reboot. And if it gets bad enough so that there's so many blockages it can find no way to do its work, the hard drive just lays down and dies. And you've got to start over with new. Does that sound anything at all like our minds or Christian life? Now, Christ wants to work through us. He wants everything to be go in the system. He wants no blocks, no blockages, no dead parts in there that don't function and that slow down the capacity of He and His Spirit to flow through our minds and project out to others to do good as He did. Now, what are the blocks than they're in our brains. The works of the flesh, the emotions, the feelings, the thoughts, the desires that he read that we just read about. Those block the spirit. They, to put it as Paul did, quench the spirit. They make it unable for it to have a meaningful path to follow, to work right, and to produce Love, joy, peace, temperance, patience, long-suffering, mercy, kindness, joy, hope, and all the fruit of God's Spirit. They make it difficult for those attributes to come out. Therefore, we have arguments and fights and contrariness and lust and vanity, jealousy, envy and greed, and all the things that beset us because the paths are blocked. Quench, stopped. So, we struggle to be like Christ and to act like Christ. And a lot of times our reactions aren't Christ-like, are they? We find ourselves so many times saying, Oh, why did I say that? Why didn't I say that? We come to a situation where maybe there's a difference of mind or whatever, and our reaction... <coughs> is a human, selfish, greedy reaction. Why wasn't it the same reaction that Christ would have had under the same circumstances? Because it's having to fight through all the garbage and the wrong answer comes out. That's how we quench the Spirit. We allow all these things to get in the way of it Block the passages so it can't function properly. 
call it human viruses instead of computer viruses. Now, we've got to find a way to defrag and get those blockages removed so that the Spirit can flow freely through our minds and out our mouths and that the work of our hands might be a righteous work. The human body is very much the same way. I don't want to get into all of the pollutions, but God made the body, and He says the body is the temple of the Spirit, so this is tied together. The computer is a good analogy there, but so is the human body. That's the one that God uses a lot. When we're born, hopefully, we have a healthy body. Now, we're in an age where the air you breathe is polluted and the food you drink and the water you drink, and I mean the food you eat and the water you drink and everything. The, the planet we have polluted terribly. So babies who should have been born healthy and might have been a hundred years ago, now are born with cancer. They're born with diabetes. They're born with heart problems. They're born with drug abnormalities, all kinds of diseases that even babies are born with. So, But let's set that aside. God made the human body to naturally function well and to be healthy, okay? And it does. And if we put good stuff in there... It will tend to work well. It will tend to be healthy. That is the natural state. But if we start putting all kinds of junk and garbage and swill and pollutants in that body, which our society today has more of than any society there has ever been, we ingest massive amounts of chemicals and artificial things and medicines and oh, just on and on and on it goes. But the body God made to take in good food, and He provided filters so that if there is something that is not good that gets there, it that could block health, could block vibrancy, it'll filter it out. Kidneys, liver, bowels. You have filters built in. Now, those work wonderfully. But when they get overloaded with too much junk and swill and filth and pollutant, they get to the place they don't work anymore. The body begins to slow down like the computer. It begins to make mistakes. It begins to be sick and not feel good and able to do its job. The world's solution when we have overloaded it to the point the filters don't work, is to look at the pain, the symptoms that we have, and not put us back on something good that will cleanse the body out and allow the filters to work again before they clog up and we die. They just mask the symptoms with drugs, and then those have side effects. If you don't believe it, watch a TV commercial. And then they give you more drugs to mask the symptoms that that drug gave you. And pretty soon you've got a double handful of drugs. They continue to plug the body and make it worse. And if the pollutants that you put in in the first place that gave you bad health don't kill you, then eventually 
those things they give you to mask the symptoms, the pain, will kill you. Instead, we need to be cleansed. We need, and people right now, I know, are going through cleanses. A liver cleanse, a colon cleanse, and so on. Because our bodies are filled with pollutants. Now, I'm not going to get into all the detail about that. That isn't my purpose today. I'm just saying the human body is designed to work well. And the reason it doesn't work well is because of what man and Satan has done to us. And then we as a society treat the symptoms rather than the cause. And we're getting sicker and sicker and dying more and more, and it's becoming a plague. So there are blockages to good health that have to be removed. Just like you defrag the computer, you must also detoxify the body and then put good stuff in so that health can return. If you don't do it in time, we have memorial services. Now, it's not all our fault, and I'm not trying to blame anyone or make you feel bad if you have a health problem. We can get health problems from spiders and ticks and snakes and, and falling out of airplanes. Well, that's usually not an injury, but uh, car accidents then. There are all kinds of things that can happen, not because of just what we ate. What I'm trying to explain is that the human body is designed to work a certain way, and anything that causes a variance to that creates blockages and problems to health. And then we can't serve God in the way that we'd like because we have bad health. Now, bad health is discouraging and frustrating and, and difficult to deal with. And it's also difficult to regenerate that which has gone south so badly. A lot of people are going to die. And only God can save us. And He has promised us that if we will serve Him, He will heal us. And I firmly believe that it's going to happen. It's not something that we can all by ourselves regenerate. He says he'll make the lame to walk, the deaf to hear, the blind to see. And you're not going to recover those things with a detox diet, okay? There are a lot of things that have gone wrong that are not necessarily our fault, but there's an awful lot that's the fault of the devil and the society around us and we were too unwitting and got involved, and today we are what we are. We're having to deal with it. But we know there's a way out of it. So, those blockages are there. How do you get rid of the spiritual blockages that are preventing the Spirit of God to flow freely through you and out to others? There is a way. There is a way. Let's go on now to John 4. And here I want about verse 10. And Emmanuel answered and said to her, If you knew the gift of God... 
and who it is that you that says to you, Give me to drink, you would have asked of him, and he would have given you living water. He only asked for physical water. He's saying you could have had spiritual water. Water that will make you live forever. The woman said to him, Sir, you have nothing to draw with, and the well is deep. She didn't get it at all. From where then have you that living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob, which gave us the well, and drank therefore of himself and his children and his cattle? And Emmanuel answered and said to her, Whosoever drinks of this water shall thirst again. I had a drink earlier. I had a drink right up here. And I've been talking so long that I'm getting thirsty again. I'm going to need some more water. But whosoever drinks of the water that I shall give him shall never thirst. But the water that I shall give him shall be in him a well of water springing up into everlasting life. Starts out as a little earnest at the time of the laying on of hands and grows and springs into a welfare or wellspring of eternal life. And from that laying on of hands, it should be growing in each of us every day until it explodes into dramatic things like resurrections and glorification. That's where it's headed. That's what he's given us. Chapter 7 of John. Verse 37, In the last day, that great day of the feast, Emmanuel stood and cried, saying, If any man thirst, let him come to me and drink. He that believes on me, and the Scripture has said, out of his belly shall flow rivers of living water. If we lean on Christ, and he lived his life in us, we will be like a spring of living water. And His Spirit is like living water. But it produces. Ephesians 5 is key to where we're headed. Ephesians 5. Verse 25 Ephesians 5.25 Husbands, love your wives, even as Christ also loved the church. So he's telling us that we should, as humans, love our wives in the same way that Christ loved the church and gave himself for it that he might sanctify and cleanse it Ah, we need the temple sanctified, set apart for holy use, and we need it cleansed so that it be pure and clean, and Christ would love to be there and dwell there and live His life in our body, the temple of His Spirit. Specifically, our mind. Our physical body, we need to strive to take care of because it's the temple of His Spirit. So we have a physical responsibility And then we have the spiritual part of it in cleansing our mind of the thoughts. How does he do that? That he might sanctify and cleanse it 
with the washing of water by the Word. That's how you defrag. That's how you cleanse your mind. It is by nature filled with filth and lust and selfishness and greed and envy and jealousy and every negative human emotion that comes. And the world will put that fine coat of dust on it externally, while you internally have it by nature. And the only way to cleanse it, to wash it, to make it pure, is by the washing of water by the Word of God. This book is the defragger. It's the professional defragger. Not the one that works a little bit or doesn't do much good. This is the one that washes your brains. This is the one that cleanses it. How many times in a year do you read, what is it, 1 Corinthians 6, 33, I think, or 34? Flee fornication. How often do you read that? How often, by contrast, in the world, do they tell you to fornicate? either outrightly or uh, implied. Thousands upon thousands of times. How are you going to fight that? You read that scripture and others, maybe once or twice, three times a year, if you happen to run across it. You hear this stuff all day long, every day. Wherever you go, it's before you. If you don't turn on anything electronic, go to town. It's flaunted before you there. It's in the, even in the advertisements and the pictures and the, in the windows of the stores. It's everywhere you look. It's everywhere you go. Do you wonder why your mind gets blocked and it's hard for the spirit to penetrate and come through? That which is natural to your mind is augmented and pushed and magnified by everything around us. And he tells us here that we have to be washed by the water of the Word. Now, all this is is a glorified sermon about Bible study, okay? (laughs) Nothing new. But I hope what we are seeing here and beginning to understand is that There are blockages. The 1 Corinthians 5.19 was not written in vain. That our own human emotions and minds will block God's Spirit, and the world around us will also block God's Spirit. And the way to get through that and around that and to remove the junk is to have our heads in the Word of God. That is a simple solution. It is a very difficult solution to augment, or I mean to, uh, that's the wrong word, to make work. Because we get so busy with our lives and our work and our things and our entertainments and our electronic gadgets 
that we don't have time to bury our heads in this book. We don't need to study the Bible necessarily to learn a new doctrine. We have a lot of good doctrine. We have some that are newer. I didn't reveal any astounding new prophecy to you today if you think that's what I was going to do based on what I said yesterday. I fear that we tend to quench God's Spirit a great deal simply by letting it be squeezed out. And we have to defrag regularly. So it's not a matter of knowledge. It's not a matter of necessarily being able to quote chapter and verse. It's a matter of we, we need to be reminded every day of the things that we need to be thinking the things we need to be saying, Christ's responses, Abraham's responses, everything but our own carnal responses, so that if our mind is filled with this Word, then that's the way we respond because that's what's on our mind. And we tend then to produce more love and joy and peace and happiness and patience and and mercy and forgiveness and all those things that God's Spirit should produce. For a tree to produce fruit, it has to take water up through the roots, up through the trunk, out through the limbs, into the twigs, the leaves, and the buds. It needs water to bring minerals and nutrition to all its parts. It needs Light from the sun. We need light from God to produce fruit. It needs um, air in order to produce fruits. Trees take in carbon dioxide and put out oxygen. All these things are necessary. The breath of life, the life from God. You know what else a tree needs to produce fruit? Time. He says produce fruit with patience in one place. I don't know where it is right at the moment. And it takes the right climate. Some of you are trying to produce fruit on trees here, and some of them get their buds nipped right in the spring with a frost. They don't produce fruit if that happens. We have to provide the right kind of climate. That's why God said, get out of the world, get out of Babylon, leave Babylon behind. Don't let it influence you. You've got enough of a problem with your own mind without help from the outside. Please. Now, I've preached that over and over again, and we tend to stick with it and bring it to us and bring it in with us and go out to it in various ways. So I'm not going to dress us down and yell and scream at us about that today. I'm just going to say I hope what is being said will help you understand what the problem is, what it causes, and what it takes from you, and what it quenches that you desperately want but can't seem to produce the amount of that you need. Produce much fruit, not just a little scabby, warty, gnarled, misshaped 
peace now and then, but much fruit. For a computer to work, it has to be defragged and cleaned up, and the avenues have to work. For a river to flow, it has to have a bed it can flow down and have clean, clear water that heals the land. And God uses that analogy from under His throne to cleanse the world. His Word, His water, will cleanse the whole earth. He gave us this Word to use as a daily defragger. He told Joshua, read the book, read the law every day of your life so that you might have good success as he was about to go into the land. That's something we need to do. He told the kings, read the law every day. We're to be kings and priests. Read the law every day. You have to replace the garbage that's in your mind. Cleanse it. Wash it. Sanctify it. Make it a place of habitation for God so that both He and you will be comfortable in your head. Now, that's just the daily stuff. What about all that baggage you've got from your whole life? What about being misused and abused as children? What about being raised by parents that didn't have the right balance and didn't know much about being a parent because they might have been still kids themselves? And you didn't get the proper upbringing. And you have all kinds of experiences in the past that have warped and twisted and misused and abused your emotions and have made you what you are today. We all have different types of emotional, mental, physical, spiritual baggage that we tend to carry around. And it still affects the way we react because our dad misused us and abused us in whatever ways. We have a chip on our shoulder or we have a feeling of inferiority or we have, we got all kinds of psychoses, don't we? We have terrible things that happened in our lives. Loss of a child, loss of a parent, loss of a wife, loss of a husband. On and on it goes. Everybody has different pressure points. Everybody has things that shape them the way they shape today. How are we going to fix it? Wash, cleanse with this word. It's a simple solution, but hard to implement. Ephesians 5.26 is very, very important. John 6.63, I won't turn there for sake of times. He says, His words, let's do turn to that one, John 6.63. It goes with this one so well, and it's so critical to my whole premise today. John 6.63, it is the Spirit that quickens. The flesh profits nothing. The words that I speak to you, they are Spirit and they are life. These words lead to eternal life. We are here today because we want to be among the first fruits and the first resurrection and be the bride of Christ. 
And he's sanctifying us and washing us by the water of the Word. We're here today to hear the Word of God and to be cleaned up and prepared as a bride for Christ. That's why we're sitting in these chairs today. It's already been read in Revelation 3 from a different aspect today, but he says, I stand at the door and knock. The door is another blockage. A door keeps us from going in and going out. This today is about blockages. About things that get in the way and quench and staunch and stop the Spirit of God from being able to work in and through us. And we have to face the reality that the works of the flesh and of the human mind are indeed blockages, however much we might love them. They are impediments to eternal life. They do not lead to love and joy, peace, and long-suffering and temperance and mercy and hope and love. They just don't. And the only way that we can get rid of them and have the fruit of the Spirit produced is to come to this Word, to knock on the door, as we read in Luke, and I will open, and I will come and sup with you. That means share the wedding supper with us. He makes it very clear there in Ephesians 5 that the way he prepares his bride, the way he cleanses her and makes her pure and white and virgin, spiritually speaking, is the washing of the water by the Word of God. If you will do this and read this book every day of your life, you will be in the kingdom of God. Because it will cleanse you, and it will wash you, and it will whiten you. And it will also, if you read it carefully, prevent you from getting self-righteous about reading it every day and missing out because you're a self-righteous person who puts yourself above others. Because it will also humble you. Because you won't live up to it day by day. But over time... If you keep reading it, you're going to open the blockages that cause the Spirit of God to be throttled back and not be able to flow through you. Is this just another sermon on you should ought to read the Bible? Or are there some things here that should help our understanding of what is the problem and what needs to be done about it and might then thereby encourage us and give us more reason to read the Bible than, well, that's what every Christian ought to do. You should ought to do it. That doesn't get the job done. But if you understand the process that is going on and what it can do for you, give you eternal life in the kingdom of God, because Christ lives His life in you and wants it to continue as His bride 
then reading the Bible is paramount as an important thing in our lives. This is the day the Holy Spirit came. Let us not quench it. Let us increase it. Let us open up the paths so that it might flow through and produce the fruit of the Spirit of the living God.